welcome to Addicted to Murder. This is Courtney, licensed professional counselor and true crime enthusiast. And this is Trisha, and I just recently upgraded my Alexa to Samuel L. Jackson. That sounds amazing. Why don't you ask him a question? Oh. Hey, Samuel, what's your favorite curse word? Motherfucker's my favorite word. It was so worth the $4.99 I paid for it. I agree. Hey, Samuel, set alarm for 7 p.m. Alarm set for 7 p.m., making me work on the weekend. Better have a good fucking reason. (laughs) All right. Well, welcome to Addicted to Murder. Yeah, so it has been an exciting week for us over here at the Addicted to Murder podcast. We have seen a just kind of a big jump in our followers and our likes and comments. And so we want to thank every one of you out there who's been listening, who's been looking at our social media, um, and who has been responding to all of us. It's so nice to see some listeners be engaged. Yeah, we have five listeners in Michigan and one in Belgium. Which is pretty awesome. Yeah. But most of our listeners, of course, are in Oregon. Right. So those are our, you know, beloved friends and family. Right. Exactly. We appreciate all of you. And as always, please uh, email us at addictedtomurderpodcast at gmail.com. Yep. Or check us out on our social media, um, Addicted to Murder, um, on the Facebook page. And then our Instagram is Addicted to M Podcast. Right. Well, Courtney, we have a new killer this week. I am super excited. I picked this one. Uh, it's an Oregon serial killer. Speaking of which, um, you had sent me a ad in the paper, not an ad, but an article that Lane County just had a serial murderer discovered. Um, right? He killed, what, three or four people, and they just found it out with like, recent DNA evidence? Right, yeah, so there was a series of three murders back, I want to say in the late 70s or early yeah. 80s, um, and they never sort of knew who did the three, um, and I think this guy was maybe a suspect mm-hmm. at the time, but they had no way to prove it, and so just recently through DNA testing, they were able to link it to this one person um, who unfortunately was already dead by the time that he was discovered to be the serial killer here in Lane County. Right. Sounds like he committed suicide soon after his last murder. Correct. Right. Anyways, that was just a weird thing that popped up last week in the news. So that's not who we're talking about today. Today we are talking about Jerry Brudos, also known as the Lust Killer, also known as the Shoe Fetish Killer. So without further ado... Jerome Henry Brudos was born in Webster, South Dakota on January 31st, 1939 to Eileen and Henry Brudos. He had one older brother, Larry, and apparently his mother had wanted Jerry to be a girl. But what she got was a redheaded, blue-eyed boy who she disliked immediately from the start and had made it very clear to him throughout his whole life. Jerry definitely felt this and he grew to despise his mother. Excuse me. Henry, or excuse me. Um, Henry, his father, was a short man at 5'4", and because of this, he tried extra hard to be tough and was verbally abusive, but Jerry still preferred preferred Henry to his mother. He got along with his brother fine, even though Larry was considered the good one, the golden child. Courtney, why do you think his mother pretty much instantly disliked her newborn? What kind of detriment does this do to a baby? 
So there are a few reasons why a mother might reject her child, um, but there are two that are the most probable. Um, so research has shown that there is a connection between a mother's self-esteem, her own experience of parental rejection, and an infant having a more kind of like reactive or difficult temperament. Um, and if all those factors sort of come together, that can create feelings of like dislike, hatred, and difficulty with that mother-baby bonding. So basically, if that were to happen, if Eileen had a parent who was cold, uncaring, or absent, she may have internalized this as, you know, how parents are supposed to feel. Um, but she didn't have that same reaction when Jerry's brother was born. So I think it's more likely that she may have been suffering from postpartum depression after giving birth to Jerry. So postpartum depression is much more than just feeling sad. Um, it can impact a mother's ability to empathize with her child, to manage their own irritability or anger, especially if the infant is often like really fussy or hard to soothe. Um, it impacts your energy and ability to actually give care and affection. Um, and it can lead to kind of mom only seeing the worst in her child because of the negative thinking that goes along with PPD. And in really bad cases, I think as we've probably heard of in the news sometimes, it can lead to thoughts and urges to like harm or abandon the baby altogether. And <clears throat> I'm assuming that postpartum depression wasn't super well known back in the 30s. So could Eileen have thought her disdain for Jerry was because she thought she wanted a girl and um, that was just what she blamed it on and maybe that's what happened? Do you know what I mean? Um, yeah, I think She didn't know how to name it, so she was like, well, it's because he's a boy and that's not what I wanted, so I don't like him. That is very possible. Um, and then on the other side, right, that bond between parent and baby in those first, you know, zero to 24 months is extremely important in developing strong attachments. And so if Jerry experienced his mother as cold, uncaring, and hostile, he could easily develop a belief that kind of all women are this way. And having a father that was also emotionally unavailable and abusive certainly did not help to provide any sort of like buffer against these effects from his mother. Okay. Well, the family moved at least a dozen times during Jerry's childhood. Typically, they lived on farms. Uh, during World War II, the Brutos family lived in Portland, Oregon. <clears throat> Jerry was allowed to pretty much run around and do what he pleased. One day, he was at the local dump and was pawing through a trash and uh, pawing through the trash and found a pair of patent leather strappy heels. Jerry was in awe of these shoes. He had never seen anything like them before. His mom didn't wear shoes like that. His mom didn't dress up. Um, so he was just fascinated by these shoes. He took them home and he paraded around the house in them for a while until his mom saw him in them. Eileen was very upset by this. She freaked out on the five-year-old, told him to take the shoes back to the dump, told him he was wick wicked for wearing them in the first place. And a young Jerry was very confused as the shoes weren't wanted. They were thrown away. He didn't understand why he couldn't have them if nobody else wanted them. So he secretly kept those shoes and he would wear them on the sly, but his mom eventually caught him again, grounded him to his room, and burned the shoes. 
Courtney, what kind of message is this sending to this little kid? What does moving around constantly do to a child as well? So kind of that two-part question, I'll address, I think, the moving around a lot first. So frequent moves can have pretty significant impact on kids as they're developing. Um, And I mean, he was, you know, a little bit younger, so he wasn't necessarily school-aged all the time when he was moving. Um, But especially when you get to that school age, you're constantly having to start over. You're constantly having to make new friends. There's no sense of stability or trust kind of in that your world is going to stay the same. Everything can feel pretty chaotic. Um, And so it might be that, you know, young Jerry was looking for something to feel like a constant or a comfort for him. And in a way, finding these shoes kind of turned out to be that thing for him. Um, But if you look at his mom's response to the shoes in particular... There are probably two meanings that Jerry maybe could have gotten from his mom's response. One was that he was wicked and bad as a person for having the shoe and wearing it, which she literally called him wicked, so it was a very direct message there. And two, that there was something awfully special about this type of shoe that was forbidden, Um, which, as we know, when you forbid a child from having access to something... It just leads them to wanting it even more. Right. So that's interesting. I didn't think about um, him moving around so much that a object like a shoe might make him feel more secure. Yeah. It's kind of like anyone having like their teddy bear or a security blanket. Hmm. Okay. Well, when Jerry was finally allowed out of his room after this punishment that he didn't really understand, he had a neighbor um, that he ran over to. She was a kindly elderly lady, and she lived there, and she often comforted Jerry. I have a feeling he was in trouble a lot at home, especially since his mom obviously did not hide her dislike for him, so he would go over to her to get comfort. Eventually, though, her diabetes would make it so that she was too sick to see Jerry, and this devastated him. Jerry also had a friend his age, but she was also very sick, and she died of tuberculosis uh, once she was five or six years old. Jerry was very upset over her death, and it took him a long time to move on from both of these losses. Jerry would then correlate the shoe incident, the neighbor who abandoned him by being too sick to play, and the little girl that died into one incident. Um, This is what I read in the Anne Rule book, lust killer so most of my information i'm just saying right now comes from this um comes from this book and um yeah so check it out anyways courtney do you see something that may start to develop in this situation sure when kids are young they are experiencing many things that are emotionally charged and feelings these emotions sometimes for the first time and these create what you know some people might call like core or like formative memories and so for young Jerry right finding the shoes his mom's angry reaction and then losing two women or girls that he was very close to all occurred in this relatively short period of time so it's feasible that the ideas of high heel shoes and women could get mixed up and tied to feelings of anger sadness and abandonment thus kind of creating a perfect storm to set him up for 
developing a fetish and rage towards women. Okay. I'm going to talk to you about fetishes later on because I'm sure there's some sort of psychological definition of fetish. So just keep that in mind. Jerry still continued to be fascinated with shoes. He attended elementary school with a teacher that always had two pairs of high heels with her in case one pair started to hurt. One day he stole the pair she wasn't wearing and he kept them for quite a while, but he felt bad about it and he gave them back. Now, the teacher's reaction was different than his mom's. Um, she wasn't mad, but she was really confused and maybe a little bit weirded out about why he did what he did. But Jerry couldn't really understand that either. So Jerry had an average or above average IQ. He would later tell you know, authorities that his IQ was 160, but I believe they found it to be about 125. Nothing bad with that. Probably what Nope, he was not a are. genius, but he was average. Yeah. He did feel second grade. He was always sick with migraines and bronchitis and fungus on hands and feet and possibly had to have a vein stripping as he remembered having surgery on his legs because his veins would swell. So I'm imagining that's why he um, had to take second grade over again. Uh, but does being held back have traumatic effects on children, Courtney? It certainly can, which is why most schools no longer use this practice. Um, when you make a child repeat a grade while all of his peers move forward, multiple things are happening. So there's this message being sent that this child is not smart enough or as good as the other kids his own age. There's a message being sent that you are somehow different and separate. Um, And then it separates them from any positive friendships or social relationships that they may have had which can then delay their social development at times because rather than letting them advance and spend time with kids their own age, they're being held back around kids who may be at a lower developmental level than them so they don't learn those skills at the same time as their same age peers would. So what do they do instead? They keep them in the grade but just maybe have them do different types of classes if, if they're needing additional help? Yeah, so these days there's a lot more like resources in schools to provide like extra instruction um, or specialized instruction to help, you know, kids catch up. Okay, I didn't know that. That's that's good, I think. Yeah, I could see it being like super sad if you got stuck behind and your friends all went on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, um, another shoe incident occurred a little later on when a friend of the family came over for a visit. She was tired, so she went to lay down on one of the beds in the house, and for whatever reason, she wore her bed, her shoes to bed, and they were poking out of the covers. Little Jerry saw this and attempted to take them off her feet to steal them, but she woke up and shooed, pun intended, him away. Jerry decided that because of his mother's disdain toward him, his neighbor neglecting him, his girlfriend dying, his teacher not trusting him, and the lady in the bed that all women couldn't be trusted. He was still very young when he decided this. Courtney, what are your thoughts? Again, I think we're seeing this solidification of those early beliefs that he'd started to develop to develop by the age of five when he was really young. Right? So he's interpreting these reactions to him as further evidence to continue to feel anger and rage towards women. Okay. Well, the family moved again, this time to Grants Pass, Oregon. hey Hey, family. I've got lots of family there. Uh, where Jerry began sneaking into the neighbor's house. This family had several teenage daughters, and Jerry would filch not only their shoes, but he started to take 
their underwear. Courtney, it looks like he's starting criminal activity pretty young. Are you surprised by his behavior? Not at all. I mean, if we see anything from that very first shoe incident of him sort of taking and hiding, you know, those shoes from his mom, it's kind of how he learned, like, okay, if I want this, this is the only way I'm going to get it. Right. Okay. Well, then the family moved to Salem when he was 13. Salem, Oregon. When he was 16, so he was still in Salem at this time, he had his first wet dream. And from what I have read, he did not masturbate or anything prior to being 16, which I'm not a boy, but I think that seems odd, but whatever. Um, He did not understand what happened, but his mother was more than willing to make him feel ashamed and awkward. She made him wash his sheets by hand, and he made him sleep without the sheets until his wet ones dried. He had to dry them on the the line outside. So this was the only time he's ever ejaculated in his life and it would be the only time he would ejaculate <laughs> ejaculate for a while. Oh my gosh. But he he felt that they were shameful because of what his mom, you know, made him feel. So what happens to a 16-year-old boy when their mother scolds them for something like this? I mean, it's not as if they can help it. You know, it's completely natural. Right. So I think the first thing we need to remember is that Jerry was becoming a teenager in like the early 1950s. And during that time, attitudes about sexuality were definitely more on the puritanical side, particularly in religious families and communities. Um, So I believe that his mother was a devout Catholic. So those rules were probably instilled very early that anything around sex outside of marriage is bad and evil. Um, so basically, right, any sort of sexual arousal that was not related to a married couple making babies, um, was seen as sinful, even though, you know, we understand now that things like wet dreams and masturbation are completely normal and healthy for teenagers. But for Jerry's mother to react in such a shameful way, it would only have served to remind him that he was bad and unlovable at least in her eyes right well by this time jerry was fantasizing about things he'd like to do to women for several days he dug a hole in the side of a hill with the intent of putting a girl in there so he could make her do whatever he wanted it's interesting to note that jerry never stole his mom's stuff but he did continue to steal from neighbors and he was growing quite a collection At some point a little later, Jerry was not satisfied with articles of clothing anymore, and he wanted a naked photograph of a girl to look at. So this is what Jerry did to make that happen. He talked to a girl whose stuff he had stolen and told her he was assisting the police to find the items as other items in the neighborhood had been stolen as well. Jerry told the girl that the cop said he would be a great undercover investigator. He invited her over on a night when he knew his family would be out and told her he'd help her get her stuff back. She was certain and and skeptical, but she decided she was not afraid of the goofy-looking kid. So when she knocked on the door, Jerry yelled at her to come up the stairs. And as she started to go up the stairs, a person in a mask, wielding a knife, jumped out at her and said, Take off your clothes or I'll cut you. He then put the knife against her throat. She took off her clothes in fear. Then the, then the masked man took out a camera and started taking pictures. He took pictures of her naked and clothed and semi-clothed until the rule ran out. The masked man then walked away. The girl put on her clothes and started to run out of the house when an unmasked Jerry walked in breathing heavy and asked if she was okay. 
as he was out in the barn when someone came by and locked him in. That was his uh, excuse for what happened. The girl fled. She knew it was Jerry the whole time, but she was now afraid of him. She was worried that he might kill her, and so she did not go to the police. Um, Corey, what the fuck is happening to young Jerry? So it seems like Jerry has reached the point in his development as a sexual sadist that fantasies were no longer enough to satisfy his urges, and he had to up the ante. So for a while, right, he was able to cope with his fantasies by using his imagination, collecting shoes and undergarments, and, you know, the occasional peeping at girls through the window. But soon, those were not enough to allow him to be sexually gratified. And just like any addict, he needed something stronger, so to speak. And, I mean, clearly Jerry was resourceful and thought himself to be pretty clever at coming up with a ruse to not only get naked pictures and act act out his rage, but then to also try and frame himself as the good guy who tried to save her. What is a sadist? So a sadist is a person who derives sexual pleasure from watching or inflicting pain and suffering on others. And would you consider fear to be a sort of pain? Yes. Okay. Well, okay. Jerry was, to say the least, an awkward teen. He was large, lacked grace, and had bad acne. Apparently, he also gave off a creepy vibe to the ladies. But on April on an April night in 1956, Jerry somehow managed to get a 17-year-old girl into his car. She started to panic when he kept driving at a faster rate away from where she thought they were going, and eventually he found a secluded spot miles away from anyone. Jerry ripped her out of the car and began to beat her on her face and her chest. He then told her to take her clothes off. She kept screaming for help, and then Jerry punched her in the nose. Luckily, and thank goodness for her, a car drove up and saw what was happening. Jerry told the couple in the car a couple of lame stories, like she had fallen out of the car, and then when that didn't work, he told them that he actually found her all beaten up on the road. The couple did not buy it and insisted that both of them get in the car. They took them to their house where they called the state police. Jerry admitted to the police that he had actually beaten the girl, his reason being he wanted to frighten her enough to make her take off her clothes so he could take pictures of her. He denied doing anything like this before and said his temper had gotten the better of him. The poor girl was treated at the hospital with bruises and a badly broken nose. The cops searched his house and found all of his treasures of women's clothing and shoes and the photos of the new girl. He lied and said it wasn't his. Same old story. Jerry was arrested for assault and battery and was sent to Polk County Juvenile Department, which did a background investigation. Of course, his mother was outraged and his father was just confused. So the investigation led to Jerry being admitted to the Oregon State Hospital uh, for treatment in 1956. Courtney, do you know what Jerry can expect in this type of facility? So mental health treatment was, in many ways, very different in the 1950s compared to how it is now. So psychiatric hospitals, like the Oregon State Hospital, had really, just in the last 10 years or so at that time, started to shift from those like horrific nightmares we all imagine or have seen portrayed in movies Right, two facilities that kind of genuinely believed in rehabilitation. And there had been a study around that time that showed that providing an environment that was calm, safe, and homey 
improved patient outcomes, which is shocking, apparently, to them at the time. Um, But during his time at the Oregon State Hospital, uh, Jerry worked with psychiatrists who most likely had an approach of like a cognitive, so looking at thinking, um, or like a biopsychological approach. So more of there's something physically wrong with you that's causing mental problems. Um, So it was really popular at the time period to want to treat mental health disorders using physical interventions. So medications were just starting to become widely used. Electroshock therapy was pretty popular. And in some places, um, they were still using lobotomies, although not at the Oregon State Hospital, fortunately. Um, There isn't any indication that Jerry experienced any of these, however. Um, So it was probably more just the psychotherapy. And at that time, it was moving in what we call like a cognitive and behavioral direction, focusing on changing thoughts about things and shaping behaviors using what we call like behavioral conditioning. So that kind of classical conditioning um, that we think of with like Pavlov's dogs. Mm -hmm. A lot of people have heard about that in their sort of psych 101 class. So you ring a bell and then you give the dog food. And, and he salivates. And he salivates, yep. right? And then pretty soon the salivation just comes with ringing the bell, even if there's no food. Mm-hmm. Um, so that they were doing that with people, essentially, um, during this time. And so my understanding is that because of his age and how well he was kind of functioning outside of this sexual delinquency, he was sort of on a day release program there so he was released to go to school during the days and then returned in the evenings for therapy sessions and to spend the night well can you tell us what the psychiatrist discovered so this was actually really interesting for me Um, i had to go way back to the original dsm the diagnostic and statistical manual of mental disorders that was first published in 1952 So the four editions since then have changed so much with regards to what we understand and how we classify different mental health diagnoses. At the time, however, most of the diagnoses in the DSM were either thought of as brain problems or reactions to a life event. So Jerry was diagnosed with what was called adjustment reaction of adolescence which is categorized as a transient situational personality disturbance in those days. Um, So basically, the doctors believed that his shoe fetish, sexual and assaultive behaviors happened because he was having trouble dealing with the hormones, feelings, and expectations related to be a teenager. So he spent, right, like nine months in treatment where he revealed that Um, Some of his sexual fantasies revolved around the hatred of his mother and women in general. Um, Some sources report that he sort of later in his treatment was diagnosed with schizophrenia, uh, but it should be noted that that the schizophrenia diagnosis was kind of like a catch-all diagnosis um, kind of at the time and very different from what schizophrenia would be classified as today. Um, And so by today's standards, Jerry likely would have been diagnosed with something called conduct disorder um, and like a fetishistic disorder. So we've talked about conduct disorder with Ted. 
Right. right. What is a fetishistic disorder? Can you just kind of go into what makes something an actual fetish rather than like a hobby? Right. So a sexual fetish, um, to be considered that, requires that a person require a certain non-sexual object or body part um, in order to be aroused sexually and to have sexual gratification. So anything could be a item of a fetish. It could. I mean, mm-hmm. Okay. So it just has to be something that's not typically thought of as sexual. Right. That does bring sexual arousal, arousal to the person. Correct. Okay. So like... That's kind of simple, actually. It is pretty simple. Yeah. So it could kind of be anything. Yeah. Okay. Well, as you said, Jerry was at the hospital for eight or nine months His parents did not want him to come home until he was cured. When he did come home, he was not missed. Um, When he left the hospital, the staff there told him he needed to grow up, and they did not deem him dangerous. Do you agree? I mean, obviously we know that's not true, but I mean, do you think that they were, that's that's all they could do at the time? It's like, okay, that's all we can do for you. Let's let you go. That would happen today, I suppose. Mm -hmm. I think a big part of what happened there um, in reading kind of the notes and comments from the psychiatrist who worked from him or with him is that he was really good at pretending. Mm-hmm. Okay. He was really good at pretending that he had remorse and pretending that he was nervous and anxious. Okay. So. And he kind of looked the part like a big goofy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, Jerry graduated 142nd in a class of 202 with a GPA of 2.1. He did excel in electric in electrical classes and mechanics. He then went to go to Oregon State University for a while and then Salem Technical Vocational School, and he went to a couple other advanced schools. So Jerry joined the Army in 1959, and he was bounced around a couple U.S. bases and eventually was sent to a base in um, overseas. And he said he started to beat up a Korean girl who he was convinced sneaked snuck into his bunk every night and tried to seduce him. Apparently, this woman would come again and again, and he would continue beating her. And Jerry wondered why no one noticed. None of his bunkmates or the guards or anyone else noticed this woman sneaking into his room or the beatings he would give her. So he decided that he might be dreaming her. Um, he eventually sought help when he thought he might end up killing this woman. And the staff psychiatrist determined that Jerry was not fit to serve due to this obsession, and he was discharged in October of that same year. Jerry did not understand why the Army would kick him out for such a minor thing, especially when he went to them for help. So, Courtney, what do you think? Was this a real person he was beating up? It doesn't seem likely, but if it's a, hallucinis- if it's a hallu- hallucination, then what does that tell us about his mental state when he can't tell the difference? So, no, I don't think that this Korean woman was real. Sometimes, especially during times of increased stress, like potentially being in Korea right around the time of the Korean War, um, the line between fantasy and reality can get kind of blurred. So Jerry already seemed to have a vivid and intense fantasy experience, as you know we know from his sexual fantasies. And then if you add in potential things like sleep deprivation, trauma, being far from home, etc., it is possible for him to maybe confuse a dream or fantasy for being real. Um, It's even possible that he may have developed what we would call like a brief psychotic episode, 
So a time when like psychotic symptoms show up, but they only last for a short time and then they go away. Um, or he could have had a sleep or nightmare disorder that could have led to this dis- obsession. Okay, so after he was booted from the armed forces, Jerry moved back into his parents' house. Um, But then when his perfect brother Larry came home from college, he was kicked out of his bedroom. And he had to sleep in the shed on the property. This reinforced his anger with his mother. His father and his brother told him it was futile to even think that he would ever gain favor with his mom. They just told him to just give it up. So this caused him to avoid home as often as possible, and when he was home, he locked himself into his dark shed and attempted to forget that his mother was controlling his life. Courtney, do you have anything to say about Jerry as a young man still seeking his mother's approval and her not giving it? Well, I don't know about you, but I don't know many people who aren't still trying to get their mother's approval as adults, if they didn't already have it. Um, And the type of maternal rejection he experienced as a young child would have created what we'd call like a deep attachment wound um, that would never really heal all the way. But now we can see that intense resentment that Jerry had towards his mother start to build and build because not only had she been overbearing and cruel to him as a child, now she was controlling and humiliating him as a young adult. Okay, so I think we're going to stop for today. And basically, we've gone over, you know, most of his childhood because now he's a man. He's back from the army. He's living with his mother, who he hates, on property. Um, And he's got a history of kind of mental illness at this point, I would say, because he was in in a um, the the state hospital for nine months, Mm -hmm. um, discharged from the army because he was having hallucinations. Um, Is there anything else you want to say before we wrap up today? I think just next week when we get into kind of the start of his real criminal behavior, a lot of it will, I think, be understood in a different context, knowing what his childhood and adolescent years were like. Okay. Sounds good. All right, everyone. We'll see you next Tuesday. Bye. Bye.